give it one more try with John and Mike and the Joe Beaver Show on 1240 Joe Radio. Good afternoon, everybody, and or good morning. It's still difficult. It's you know somebody the other day dropped a pack ten on us. Oh you yeah, know. that was Ann Schatz. <laughs> she actually did. Hey. We we had that kitty. That kitty's been em- that was emptied a long time ago. <laughs> and any anytime Pac Ten throws something into the kitty and Ann you contributed and I've to over it. That one. We generally were. I said Pac Ten the other day, though. I can't. You know, I might have even said the A A W U. Well, recently. I can know. I can tell you that in the twenty years we've been doing this, twenty plus years, I don't think either of us has ever dropped a Pac Eight. <laughs> no, I don't think so. We lived along long enough with a Pac Eight. From '78 on, and we were well, yeah. uh, well schooled. But there was a PCC and there was an AAWU for mm-hmm. a while, mm-hmm. and that became the Pac-8. When when was the changeover? Was that in our lifetime? Yes, my lifetime. Well, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually in yours too. All yes, uh, 1964. The Beavers had been operating as an independent mm-hmm. and rejoined what was the AAWU for the 64 season, and then it just, that name was a little unwieldy and awkward and just kind of became, it was a lot easier to say Pac-8 than the AAWU. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. so that was 64. The Beaver, And somebody the other day was really upset. I saw either on the University Honda text line, someone referred to, I think, maybe Marcus Mariota during a broadcast mm-hmm. being the first... Pac-12 player or, or something to that effect. Oh, I see. To yeah. win the Heisman Trophy, and just outrage at how could people forget Terry Baker? And I thought about it for a moment oh. and thought, well, maybe they meant no. That what, what they meant was, and they were right in the sense of uh, sound like Cleavon Little in a certain line, and they are right. Anyway, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> It's a, a funny response to uh, his friends in, in Blazing Saddles. They told me, yeah, and they were right. Anyway, I'll leave that. People know the line and can enjoy it. But they were right, whoever said it, about Marcus, because Terry Baker was not in the conference. Well, that's what I mean. Right. Terry Baker. The pa- Well, no. Pack, pack, he was not in the conference. He was an independent when oh, he won it. Oh, well, it would have been right if they were saying, hey, Pac-12. Yes, that's true. Or pack eight or pack ten before anybody else. Right. The last time that's true. That's a good point. So the but they were right in saying the first conference player, and that's true. Yeah. We've always thought of Terry being the first, and he was the first. Was he the first in the West? I think he was the first out West, even before any before USC USC got it rolling. Then they got it rolling, but I think Terry was the first out here. Well. yeah, I mean, it, it was, I can't believe he's before any USC Trojans. Well, it, so that means everything from... I think 36 was the first year of the Heisman, and, and the power was yeah, yeah. Notre Dame, the the Southern and Eastern, you know, Central the Big Ten schools and Southern schools and Eastern schools for, I, I think Terry was the first yeah. person in the West to win it. And I think a lot of people... Even good Beaver fans aren't necessarily historians at the top of their mind to realize that there was a year of independence. Yeah, several years, from 1959 through 63. Four years where they were just yeah. making their own making Schedules, their own way. So the 62 year, 
That the was Liberty back then. Bowl year. Yeah, and that was back then when, for some reason, there was a lot of series with Iowa in football. The Beavers always played Iowa back and yeah, forth. Yeah, no, it's true. Schedule making in that era had to be difficult. There were still a lot of games with traditional conference members. They just yeah. weren't conference yeah. games. Then restored in 64 and win it on the vote. The, the one and only time maybe in our lives when the chancellors voted to send a team, tied teams, USC and Oregon State, each at three and one, hadn't played each other. And the Beavers got the vote. That is amazing because you would think they would just default to yeah, the well, blue yeah, blood. Here's USC. Yeah, yeah. we need great representation against the mighty Big Ten. Why did they leave the previous league? Were they booted? No, the Beavers weren't. <laughs> I, I, I'd have to go back and study that whole issue mm-hmm. and Kip or anybody. If it, we're not going to spend the rest of the show. We we were talking about, you know, referencing. And shots in the Pac-10, and I said, good afternoon, and that leads us down this chain <laughs> yeah, instead of good morning. Thoughts beget yeah, more thoughts, do. we it, can just go all day. Th- there, were, there were some schools that were sanctioned heavily for recruiting violations, mm. and somehow it ha- the, the fissure in the conference had to do with teams splitting. We, we don't want to be part of some of the schools that were involved with the the sanctions oh. and the league split off into its own world for a while. And I, I used to know, I've read off and on over the years, the, the details and fine print of why the Beavers operated as an independent and other schools. The PCC dissolved. Mm-hmm. The, 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 long, the Beavers had been a, a long-standing member of the Pacific Coast Conference, and the conference dissolved. And the Beavers were no more in the conference after 58 for complicated reasons that I can't, that elude well, me right and, now. And there's another question really to, to, to ponder that, and that is, has football or any other sport at Oregon State or even Oregon suffered the same fate as baseball did in the snobbery of the warm weather schools? Now, Arizona and Arizona State didn't come into play until 78, right? So... Did the L.A. schools, and maybe even the Stanford Cal, but did the L.A. schools have an attitude that we're not, you guys aren't good enough to play I with us? I think so. Yeah, I do think there was an element of that. You know, we saw yeah. that in baseball, with yeah. the Pac-12 North and South. Mm-hmm. I think there was something along those lines, too, but eventually Oregon State was reinstated to conference membership after operating as an independent from 59 to 63. There's a long story in there. Hmm. Oregon was in that mode, too. I mean, Oregon was an independent during those years, and so was Washington State. I never knew that. Washington, it's as as though the powers survived. Yeah. Washington, USC, UCLA. See, there's a little snobbery right there. No, there's no doubt some snobbery involved and some, you know, cast-level distinctions being made, and... But... So I don't know all the reasons. Part I think what you're touching on was part of it. There were also some sanctions against certain programs that I don't know if 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 there was high moral ground taken by certain schools saying we're not going to participate in a league with what's going on with those jokers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's a complicated story, like I said. Interesting. But, so anyway, we will be touching though on some Pack Eight history. A little bit later, AAWU history, but by then became the Pac-8. Coming up in a little less than an hour now, we'll visit with Tim Vollmer, who now lives in Missoula. 
and competed in the 72 Olympics, representing Oregon State, won the 1971 AAU championship, an OSU Hall of Famer in 93, an All-American in 68 and 69 in the discus. And he was part of a team that is described in some some of the old articles as a member of the, the teams of the golden era in Oregon State track and field, 1968 and 69. Golden era for... for yeah, those two years in particular with Dick Fosbury mm-hmm. and names that were amongst the best in the country and the world in that era. And Fosbury, Jim Barkley in the steeplechase, the late Steve Diatramont, who just passed away within the past week, who won national titles in the Hammer in 69 and 70. Tim was a teammate of Steve's, and that was the the impetus to get somebody yeah. on to talk to us about another OSU Hall of Famer and Steve Diatramont, who went to high school in Eugene. And I'd forgotten this, that it was St. Francis High School in Eugene that became Marist. So oh. he went to St. Francis High, graduated, I believe, in 65. Tim Bulmer, who will join us next hour, was an All-American in high school at Benson Tech mm. in 1965. And he is uh, scheduled to join us at 12.05 but with Tim, uh, with great respect for the passing of Steve Diatramont, and we received a text from Bob Keith the other day. He had heard the news Bob had somehow about Steve. And that led to our usual mode of reacting to, first of all, Bob, thank you for informing us, to finding out mm-hmm. and, and getting confirmation that it indeed was sadly true but also reaching out then to, I've reached out to several people to try to find someone. And Scott Spiegelberg, even though no longer working for uh, Oregon State University, will always be a beaver and loves the beeves and has the best Rolodex in yeah. the history of Rolodexes. Yeah, for, for former beavers. Oh, So yeah. well connected. And, and Scott has told me, you know, just as friends, as somebody who loves the mm-hmm. university, loves the history of the university, even if he's not working for the university proper, he'll always be an ambassador for and a lover of OSU athletics and so a historian. So, yeah, so, so when I called, we talked about Steve, whom Scott did not know well, but he called Dick Fosbury mm-hmm. and talked to Dick, and Dick said, hey, it would be better you know, if Mike wants to talk, Mike and John want to talk to somebody, Tim Bulmer is probably the best guy. Oh, that's great. So we'll talk to Tim next hour. But with Tim, I also look forward to talking to him. He, he wrote back, we've texted one another quite a few times now, but in one of his texts he says, I'm not much of a public speaker. I hope I'll do okay. <laughs> I'm sure he'll, he'll do he'll be fine. fine. But he competed in Munich in 72. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's not, I don't think we've ever really talked to anyone mm-mm. on the show about being there in 72. No, I don't know that we've had an athlete that was right. competing there. It's never come up. So yeah. I don't know if it's sensitive, if he was yeah, affected I, by it in a major way mm-hmm. or what. But that was a long time ago. Something uh, definitely to at least uh, ask him about just the Olympic experience. In reading and doing some research on Tim Bulmer, I came across, and I mentioned the site, it's, it's when I talk about the athletic as sort of a, a current site, mm-hmm. the athletic I, I enjoy, I, you know, I'm much more inclined to, predisposed to 
dive deep into the 1967 Rams and what was the key <laughs> to beating Green Bay. That interests me, in a sense, more than Steph Curry's response to all the criticism. <laughs> it's interesting. Him scoring 62 is interesting. It's yeah. an interesting event in our modern era. Is he being era. criticized for it? Not being criticized. No, not for that. But <clears throat> what led to it, according to the, the articles I'm reading, is this idea, well, Curry without clay, he's slipping. He's no longer going to be the major force that he was without wow. su- without other help around him. Damian Lillard even went down that path before he torched him for 62. Wow. And that's just, that amused me and, and pleased me in a sense. Not that I don't want the Blazers to lose to Curry when Steph scores 62. But on the other hand, when a superstar who has greatness in him and has had it for a long time, and people begin to say, eh. <laughs> It's the classic, classic yeah. model for <laughs> right. sports. And we build them up, and we tear them down. We, yeah, and but then I love it when the athlete can, oh, 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 really? Okay, yeah. watch this. I love that. Yeah. I love that. But I also love the, the steady athlete that understands mm-hmm. it. Even chuckles at the at the uh, game and doesn't let it affect him and has some fun with it and gives it back. I remember in the sixty eight sixty nine season. So I like the sixty seven Rams. I also like to study the sixty eight sixty nine Lakers. But in the sixty eight sixty nine Lakers season, I remember as a young fan of the NBA, listening to Chick Hearn call games and when he threw out and when I would see it in my basketball basketball stars of nineteen sixty eight book <laughs> and read the the lifetime stats of Wilt Chamberlain and that one of the first things two numbers hit you in life early seven fourteen. And 100. Yeah, yeah. Those are number. What? A player scored 100 yeah. in a game? Who can do that? Yeah. And then you see, go further. Averaged 50. <laughs> <laughs> so early numbers, 714, 150.4. Numbers that just have stayed. You read them once and you go, oh, my gosh. And they stay with you for a lifetime. Yeah. So Chick was talking one day about, and I remember listening to the game. I think it was the Cincinnati Royals and Connie Durkin. I think, I, I don't know the, the opponent exactly, but I know the center was Connie Durkin, and it may not have been in Cincinnati, but Durkin was the guy trying to guard Wilt one. Wilt had become more of a rebounder, shot blocker, led the league in assists as a center, 7-1 center in 1967, 68. Now he's with the Lakers in 68, 69. And there was an upshot. The, the idea was Wilt's big scoring games are behind him. You know, that he's just not that kind of player anymore. That was the rhetoric. And then against Connie Durkin and the, uh, some team that year, in a year he averaged about 18 a game. It's almost, <laughs> as though, yeah, it's almost as though Wilt, somebody, you know, whether he got tired of it, whether... <laughs> Maybe he just switched and said, I'm going to go focus on assists now. Yeah, whether he got tired of people saying, well, those, he went out and scored 66 <laughs> out of nowhere, seemingly. Yeah. And I listened to the game, and that's another, this is the Wilt Chamberlain of old, Shaky's saying, and I'm listening and going, oh my gosh, I didn't know the guy had it in him. And then he went back to his pedestrian 18th he, he game. He didn't follow it you know, up no, with it's just like, games. It was like, okay, okay. You, look, you say that <laughs> I'm over there, you know, I'm on the downside of my life, I'm... I'm a shot blocker now. I'm yeah. a rebounder. I'm a defender. I'm an, a playmaker. Okay, okay. Just to let you know, throw me the ball, and he scored 66 on a night and then went back to his other stuff, averaging yeah. about 18 a game again. 
Is is Curry the modern day version? Of I'm that? not sure, but it reminded me because he of that. hasn't fallen. I didn't think. No, he fallen. hasn't he fallen hurt. that far. He was hurt, and then was a little. You know, his start was a little slow this year. So articles appearing everywhere, theories as to. If oh. teams beginning to have success in a box and one, teams zoning the Warriors more, teams running, you know, double and triple teaming him, and not he's he without Clay, without other help, he's going to be a great player, but not as great, and his big days are gone. So he went out and scored 62, and even though it was at the expense of the Blazers, yeah. just as somebody who likes a storyline like yeah. that, I thought it was pretty cool. He's a guy. Damian Lillard reminds me of this too, where they can almost you can't, no one can do it perfectly, but can almost do it whenever they want. They'll go off for. I mean, in the sixty-two night, Damian goes for thirty-two. I know, but yeah, they they no. There's I don't see any any regression from uh, for Curry at all. That's ridiculous. So in looking back to Tim Vollmer, who will join us at twelve oh five, I say the SI vault. Now the athletic keeps tries. I, I dive into the athletic to try to stay just a, just a, a semblance of currency in the world of yeah, sports. Yeah. I am, well, they just have tremendous writers. They have great writers and cover stories and tremendous articles on a variety of levels. But SI Vault, that's just SIVault.com. Mm-hmm. I think every article in SI's Vault you can find. Do you have to pay for that? I haven't had to when I've done recent searches. For example, when I researched Tim Bulmer, you have to go, you know, when you more results, more results. It's like four or five pages down, more mm-hmm. results, more mm-hmm. results, more results. There it is. Uh, June 20th, 1988, Kenny Moore, point after, referenced Tim Bulmer. Kenny Moore, SI, June 20th, 1988, after Oregon State had axed its track and field program, and uh-huh. Moore wrote about the disturbing trend, not only at Oregon State, but San Jose State and other mm-hmm. former track powers. And he got uh, mentioned as one of the and, greats. And he did, but in it, here's what, here's what Moore wrote, and, and it, it intrigued me. There were a number of things in, in that issue, June 20, 1988, not only the point after kind of an op-ed piece at the end of the magazine, which was always where I would first turn whenever getting my copy or picking up a copy. What does the columnist say? What is he or she writing about? I would go to that almost immediately. But Kenny Moore, in the point after, just said this, and it fascinated me. It's a great line summing up Dick Fosbury in lamenting the demise of mm-hmm. track and field at Oregon State. And he mentions Carl Van Kalkar having just won the national championship in the steeplechase 16 days earlier, and now the program is no more. Yeah. And Kenny just said this is a terrible thing. And then he, as one who competed against Oregon State mm-hmm. while competing for Oregon, he, he understood the greatness of the tradition of track and field at OSU. And so he was the perfect writer to write about track and field's place on the national landscape, but also right here in our valley and in the Pacific Northwest. But he wrote this when talking about Oregon State's tradition, and he, was t- he talked about San Jose State and other programs, mm-hmm. too. It wasn't all just a beaver column, but Moore in SI wrote, June 20th, 1988, asked this question rhetorically, and it got me thinking about who else would we put in the category. He said, quote, has there ever been an athlete who epitomized American imagination better than Fosbury with his revolutionary flop? 
That is a tremendous rhetorical question. I don't know the answer, but the way he phrases the question, it's almost as though the, the answer that he's leading us to is, no, there isn't. And I wonder, I wonder, though, Hank Lucetti, I mean, people that revolutionized the game 1936-ish oh, 30s, okay. for, for Lucetti. Yeah. Quote, has there ever been an athlete who epitomized American imagination better than Fosbury with his revolutionary flop? What would the answer to that? How no. would you answer it? Is the answer just plain, simple, monosyllabic no? Or, well, probably not, but who's in the conversation? Well, not. No. The answer is no, because we have to really struggle to think about it. So, Fosbury, right off the top, who changed his sport more with what they did uh, ever in the Fosbury flop? Changed it right. 180 degrees from going one direction to another. Now, the forward pass, no, because the motion was probably like throwing a baseball anyway, just throwing a ball, right? Um, I'm thinking well, you have to go way back to the, the origins of the mm-hmm. sports, of the different sports, the oldest being baseball, um, as team sports go. And I don't, I don't know. How. I would suggest the close, close to an answer. I mean, people, people say that you know, people like Chamberlain and Lou Alcindor, in yeah. terms of outlawing the dunk, Alcind- the out- dunk was yeah. outlawed essentially because of Alcindor, but he didn't invent the dunk. No. And Chamberlain, uh, with the lane and rules, you, when you affect rule oh, changes, um, that's a big Bob thing. Bob Pettit. What did Pettit do? Wasn't no- it Pettit? Was it Pettit that, that forced the change in the key going from small to big? It could be. Or was I, that Wilt? I, in college, I'm not, I'd have to go back again and study these things. the key is called the key for all you youngsters out mm-hmm. there because it was shaped like a keyhole. Right. <laughs> a big round circle and then a skinny, two skinnier lines, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just like a keyhole. And again, for you youngsters, because now everything's automatic, there was a, a hole that you put the key in and turned it. And it was shaped like that. <laughs> and there was one of those. And I used to know this in, in junior high, you know, when you read those mm-hmm. older books. It was either Pettit. Or George Mikan. Oh, George Mikan. Okay. It was George Mikan. The first Mikan. big man. Yeah. First great big man in the NBA. So if you have a, any input on that, we'll have plenty of open phone time today. And if you can think of, okay, maybe there isn't much of a discussion because it's quite simply no. The answer, No. Has there ever been, Kenny Moore asked in 1988, when regretting, lamenting the loss of track and field at Oregon State, Kenny wrote, has there ever been an athlete who epitomized American imagination better than Fosbury with his revolutionary flaw? And, 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 and it's not the greatness of an athlete. And it's not even the greatness of an athlete taking something that already was and making it more notable, like... Right. Well, Babe Drew, Ruth and the home run. Right. The home run already That's existed. That's close, but, and he kind of reinvented the game by emphasizing, right. I'm going to swing, and Ty Cobb one day, back to the Wilt Chamberlain story, let me throw this in. Yeah. But I, you're on to something. I, wanna, I don't want you to lose that thought, but Ty Cobb one day when Ruth was getting all of the love for home runs, Cobb had a Chamberlain-esque or Curry-esque type moment in his own life. The anecdote, the story goes that people all oh, babe ruth babe ruth babe ruth all oh, the home run and cobb said what's the big okay just watch me today it's not that big of a deal and went out and hit three really and then said okay you see i can do it too but i play the game the right way and i'm going to keep using the whole field and i'm going to do this and that <laughs> well i could use them now because that would be a good rhetoric for today's game but right. 
he needed to be able to do that as often in, well, as, as Ruth before he could pop off that's like that. That's true, except his point was <laughs> you can do it. I can do it. Other people can do it. Now, nobody did it quite like Ruth, and so Cobb's uh, – there's – there's a stretch and an exaggeration there, but the point being that almost like Curry and like, well, well, Ty, how come you don't hit home runs like a Babe Ruth? <laughs> well, watch me today, son, and I'll show you. Uh-huh. And I can. Okay. It's an interesting story, if true. Do I, it a little bit more. But Lucetti would be the closest because they were already shooting the ball, but he changed how they shot it, getting off the ground. I think he's closest, if yeah. You, if you look at old films of, of, of basketball from the 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. You know, these guys were were it all set shots, shooting from the hip and all mm-hmm. that. So that that would maybe that would be the closest. I I, I, can't I think, think Lucetti with the running one hander. Unless though, unless there was a change in the way that certain other track and field things were done, like the pole vault. Yeah, that we don't know about. But you would say no because we don't know who they are. We don't as know we, what they do. As we go to break, something else that Moore wrote. That that interested me, just as a rhetorical question about Fosbury and perhaps being the most imaginative. Has anyone epitomized American imagination better than Fosbury with a swap? That's how Kenny Moore phrased Fosbury's place in sport. Not just track and field. America epitomized American imagination better. In, has there ever been an athlete? He's talking all athletes yeah. in all disciplines in yeah. sport. Yeah. That's just to even have a question asked about you like that is pretty impressive and more an outstanding track and field writer and sports writer and historian was even in a film i don't highly recommend it but he was in a movie called personal best and wasn't bad in it more very talented man asked that of dick fosbury so that was interesting in its own right he also he begins that column in this way johnny the opening paragraph, and it caught my attention because I had not heard of these, and I hope it can lead to, well, I'll, I'll tell you what they were or are, and perhaps even lead us down a path of what else do you miss that is no more. He opened that article in the following way. Maybe, as the saying goes, everything good is discontinued. 57 Thunderbirds, MASH, <laughs> And Nike Stings. I don't know what that is. Thank you. Nike Stings. I, I don't. I Thank you. Never even heard of them. No, that. nor have I. And but they were discontinued. Country, and huh? what are Nike Stings? We go to break. Anybody? Nike Stings. Look it up. Yeah, go ahead and look it up. But I'd rather hear, oh, Nike Stings. Yeah, I ran out and got a pair right away. I love them. I still got a pair. Is it a shoe? I don't know. I don't know what Nike Stings are. I've never heard of them. Neither have I. But they've been discontinued. Like 57 Thunderbirds and MASH, according to Kenny Moore. So what are Nike Stings? And what was hot in your day that you had to have that is no more, that you miss, or that you've seen come back round again? Adidas, the three-striped Adidas. Uh Uh We wore those in high school at Cottage Grove, and they're back. I mean, those have been back for quite a while now. Maybe they never went away, but it felt like... They've had a revival. I'll tell you a couple things. Okay, let's come, come back. back. Anybody can identify Nike Stings. And uh, bonus points to anybody that says, oh, yeah, I had some Nike Stings, whatever they were. Or <laughs> 497-5356. Any thoughts about that in the equipment world? And Moore's question, has there ever been an athlete who epitomized American imagination better than Fosbury 
with his revolutionary flop. 497-5356-1240, Joe Radio. Hi, I'm former Oregon State athlete Tim Ewis, your Corvallis Edward Jones financial advisor. Financial investments are very important, but so are the investments of time, patience, and encouragement our young athletes receive from their coaches, teachers, and mentors. That's why Edward Jones is a proud sponsor of Oregon State and area high school sports. Call me, Tim Ewis, at 541-758-8245 or stop by my office in the Timber Hill Shopping Complex in Corvallis for all of your investment needs. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Go Beavs. This is Mike Parker for Evenflow Plumbing, your trusted award-winning plumber for the Mid-Valley. Evenflow specializes in complete plumbing and drain cleaning solutions for residential and commercial jobs. They treat your home like it's their home, and their flat rate pricing means no surprises at the end of the job. Evenflow takes pride in doing the job right the first time. Just call 541-738-8853 for all your plumbing needs. When you need a pro, go with the flow. Evenflow Plumbing. Have you tried to sell your RV? Was the offer from the RV dealer embarrassingly low? Garrity's Cash for Campers program will beat any offer for your RV, or we'll give you $500. This is Shannon Nill with Garrity RV Supercenters in Junction City. Now's a great time to sell or consign your travel trailer, fifth wheel, or motorhome so you can upgrade to a newer model that better fits your lifestyle. We've bought hundreds of RVs for cash, and you can be next. Safe vacations and escapes are now more important than ever, so make sure your RV is ready to maximize your fun and enjoyment. It starts by selling your current RV, and we'll give you $500 if Gary can't beat any other Oregon dealer's written offer on your late model RV in good condition. We'll even pay off your existing loan in a hassle-free transaction when we buy your RV. Visit Garrity.com to learn more about Cash for Campers. We don't just sell fun, we guarantee it. Offer not available to commercial parties. Subject to change without notice. See dealer for details. Learn more at Guarantee.com. Trace comes inside, lays it in, and counts his foul. Your tax and wealth management coaches, Paul Witzke, David Mendenhall, Bill Heck, and Robert Berry are ready to put you in the game. Perhaps you're looking to save money for your kids' college, start your retirement, or need business coaching. Tax and wealth management has what you need to execute that game plan into a victory. With 40 years in business, tax and wealth management in Corvallis has the strategy you need for tax planning and saving for your financial future. Visit taxandwealthmanagement.com or call 541-753-41. 185 to get in the game. Welcome back to the Joe Beaver Show. If you haven't tuned into the show recently, here's Mike Parker explaining the Joe Beaver Show. We had banquets, they had banquets, and I attended banquets, emceed a banquet once. They've got banquets and Oregon State sports stock on the Joe Beaver Show. All right, just to go back real quick uh, and answer uh, what we were talking about earlier, <laughs> you know, the whole formations Pac of eight. leagues, yeah. Pac-8, A-A-W-U. Kip uh, Carlson, who's a, an archivist, he just he knows a lot of history, uh, he writes in to say that, that when the A-A-U-W got back to eight schools in 1964, the joke was, that was a lot of work, a lot of trouble just to get rid of Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> Idaho and Montana had been part Montana of the PCC for a little while, yes. I could see Wyoming being in a group that is part of us, us being yeah. the region. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm surprised that there aren't more games between some of these regional schools like uh, Boise State, Idaho, even go down to, uh, like you said, San Jose State. With the, the Beavers are doing that a little bit more often now with Jonathan Smith. But, uh, yeah, I didn't know Montana. I knew about Idaho, mm -hmm. but not Montana. Now, to, to answer the question going to break, and, again, it's wide open, 497-5356, mm -hmm. um, do you remember the first time you saw your first Nikes? Because I Ooh. did, and it, it crafts 
who I am today, and it answers the second question, which is, or actually the first question, something you miss that may be coming back. Right. I will. The only thing I'll say is, no, I don't remember exactly the first time I saw a pair of Nikes. Yeah. I do remember this, as anybody else, that Nikes were not Nikes when Nikes first came out. People said, yeah, did you see that pair of Nikes? I'm going to get a pair of Nikes. Do you yeah. have a pair of Nikes? Yeah. Now, did anybody remember that? We said Nikes, not Nikes in right. the early day. Right, right. Uh, it was at seven, 1974 or 75, mm-hmm. and a kid that was, you know, the athlete of the school. And, you know, I kind of was too, and a couple of my friends. And we would, you know, when you're in grade school, what's an athlete? The guy who tr- tries the hardest when you're playing dodgeball <laughs> or winning right. at Foursquare, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then being on the youth basketball team, and you're really good. Okay, so Mike Scotty, and he's a good friend. I mean, he was a good friend. I haven't talked to him in years, mm-hmm. but if we saw each other today, it'd be like, like we just saw each other yesterday. And he was my frenemy. We were rivals, frenemies. So we tried to get the girl or try to show off in dodgeball. And <laughs> he would play so hard, he would sweat. And I remember saying, you think you're so cool because you're sweating. Because you don't sweat when you're 10 years old. Anyway, you're dripping down sweat. <laughs> and uh, and he came in one day. And he was... He was an athlete and his dad was a coach and it was there's always that family that is the the athlete family led by the athlete dad cuz my dad yeah no not the sports guy not the mm-hmm. not the athlete in any way shape or form but he came in with these these Nike's and I'm like what are those and they were leather and they were the early Nike's with the blue stripe 1974 75 okay. it was then and there that I decided then everybody wanted some and I said I'm going to be a Converse man from here on out and have you been Essentially, I have, okay. all the way through. That's interesting. Uh, we are a Nike school, so of course I've you know found my way. <laughs> I can't remember the first Nikes that I wore, but I remember my friends who got them were calling them Nikes. I don't know if any of you remember that, but those were my early memories of Nikes. But we wore Adidas in high school, the th- white white with three black stripes on both sides, and I see those all over now. And I felt like there was a time period. When that wasn't the case, when the Adidas basketball shoes that we wore in high school didn't uh, were not around and then reemerged. So yeah. that's an answer to that. It ha- has come back. They, yeah. I mean, I feel like I see those everywhere. Yeah, I do. I do. I see them. Okay. Um, They're good looking shoes. We didn't know we had cool shoes in 1974, 75. No, no, but fact, evidently we did. Speaking of 74, Mike on the line is yeah. uh, wants to t- talk about Nike. He grew up in that era. And then I'll answer the other okay. part of the question to th- something that I think is coming back. Okay, good. Let's go to Mike. On the Downward Dog Sports Line, 4975356. Hello, Mike. Hey, you guys. How you doing today? Doing fine, thank you. Hey, you know, you're, you're talking about my neighborhood here, man. This is, this is a great conversation. But, Doug, you might remember, when I was really young, in Lake Oswego, there was a place called Blue Ribbon Sports. Do you remember that? That was uh, the, the, the first incarnations of Phil Knight's business, I believe. And I grew up there, too. Correct. Yeah. Correct, and we used to buy Onitsuka Tigers. I remember they had a red, white, and blue Mexico. That's what they called it. I remember and those. Yeah, I yeah, had a pair. Yeah. So when I got to be, oh, let's see, Mike, you and I are the same age. We were seventy-six grads. So yeah. they first started coming out, and everybody was so skeptical. It's like, what the hell are these Nikes? You know, I mean, <laughs> nobody knew what they no nobody knew what they were because we used to wear you know Pumas. Mm-hmm. Or Adidas. I mean, that's just what you wore. Yeah. Yeah. So they started to get, they kind of started to get popular, and so you know we started buying the shoes, and 
we discovered at the Hillsboro dump, Nike would take truckloads of these shoes that were happened to be seconds. Oh my gosh! And they were flawless, Mike. Wow, and Doug, they were flawless. They weren't. Nothing was wrong. So, hell, we would go out in the middle of the night and scale the fence. We had about 100 pairs of them each. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And they'd be vintage oh now. It was, like a, it was like a kid in a candy store, literally. Wow. And so, <laughs> as this went on, uh, they kind of got wise to the idea, Nike did. So, then when they started doing, and, you know, a second would be a shoe with a little bit of a glue sticking out of the edge, mm-hmm. or you couldn't even really tell. Yep. They started taking a razor blade and slicing the shoes right down the middle. Oh. So that would have been about 74 or 75. So the kid in the candy store was very disappointed when Nike kind of got wind of what all we were all doing. It was Mike, great. Here's, here's my question, and that's a great story. I'd never heard anything like quite like that before. No. Thanks for sharing it. But my question to you is, did you happen to go to the dump with your family and see some shoes? I mean, how, how do you find out that Nike's dumping shoes at the Hillsborough dump? You know, I have no freaking idea how I knew that. <laughs> but, I, you know, there's enough. We, you know, we were a huge high school, Mike, and there was enough, you know, there's enough kids and families there that it, once the word got out, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it was it was on. I mean, it was so on. And it was and we had the best of the best, you know. And then it's, it's really too bad. You know, and it's too bad they had to slice them. I mean, you know, yeah. there's a lot of people that could have used those shoes. Sure. Absolutely. But, yeah. You know, and, not to be a humanitarian here, but, you know, you're wasting that. And it was, but we had a, it was the greatest time ever uh, going gosh, to the dump. That's amazing. Shoes, man. What a treasure. Cool. What a treasure. And it sounds as though those of you who discovered it early did share the word, and a lot of, a lot of kids took advantage of it. Is that true? Before Nike like you said, caught on to you? Uh, we didn't try to say it to too many people. Mike, because <laughs> <laughs> wow. I have never yeah. heard a story no, like I haven't that either. before. I haven't either. That's and a great one, Mike. It's, it's gospel. You talk to anybody that went to Hillsborough around 74, 75, and they'll tell you the same thing. It was yeah. awesome. That's great. It's a great, great story, story, Mike. Thanks for sharing it with us. We appreciate it. Speaking, speaking of irregulars, so, and shoes... And there was an article on this, or somebody brought it up. Maybe it was on Facebook. I don't know. But Kaplan's was one of those classic uh, sporting goods stores that was in downtown Portland, the kind where you go in and it just smells like it's a thousand years old. I love Of Kaplan's, leather yeah. and wood mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go to that oh, old yeah. Kaplan's? Yeah. And then the old guy, I think his name was Kaplan, mm-hmm. would was one of those guys. In the whole, it's a mess. It's overstocked. Sure. And it's a hundred years old. And he's like, I know where that is. And he'd go and find the very yes, thing would. you're looking for. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was Americana. It's in every movie that right. you could ever think of. Right. And we would go to Kaplan's, we had to, because, you know, we six boys and one girl, and, and the budget was uh, a little tight. So the shoes that we got were the canvas Chuck Taylors that were irregulars, and like Mike just said, you couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. An eyelet didn't have metal around it mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. You just couldn't tell. And and we didn't, I didn't care. And, and I took pride in that. I was like... I am a Converse guy, and yeah. I wear canvas when it wasn't cool. Believe it or not, it wasn't cool to wear those and in the 70s. And then I don't know when it changed, but and they were white or black, and that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Now they're 100 bucks, and, and they have been for a while. They've been cool for, for many years, 
But many, many, many years before that, they weren't cool. And they were the canvas Converse. And they, we wore them for basketball. And many NBA players wore those to play basketball. Mm-hmm. But they, even though they were high tops, they didn't offer a lot of support because they were canvas and floppy. They just wrapped around your ankle and you could tie them. But support, not like a leather, a good leather shoe that's more like a ski boot nowadays and, and has been for, yeah. you know, 30, 40 years. But um, 10 bucks for for, can, wow. for irregular yeah. canvas uh, Chuck Taylors from Kaplan's. And that was uh, that was my youth for, for the shoes. Now, you say something that may be coming back, I think, because I graduated too in eighth, seventh or eighth grade. My parents wouldn't buy us anything that was beyond the minimum. <laughs> and, uh, if we wanted anything special because Tommy has a pair, mm-hmm. you got to save up your own money. Mm-hmm. And we did. Berry picking, lawn breaking, whatever it was. So $25 back in 1977 to a kid who doesn't have a job is a lot of money. And so these these Dr. J leather high tops came out. And I th- I think now there there could Dr. be Dr. J was yeah, a name so right I an think, athlete early in that whole endorsement yeah, of the there, product. I'm sure world there and, were athletes that were sponsoring shoes before that, but yeah. it's the first one that I remember okay. that was kind of the big one. Mm-hmm. And it was Dr. J with the poster and everything. And so I had to have a pair of these Dr. J leather converse. Mm-hmm. Saved up, bought them, got them at the uh I don't remember the store, but it got them in Lloyd Center. I don't know why I had to go to Lloyd <laughs> Center for them. And wore them, treated them like, you know, you know, nope, I'm not wearing them except for on the court. Mm-hmm. So I'd take them, change them like the athletes do now. <laughs> and left them as my mom was picking us up from the junior high. And it was dark out. And I left them behind, never saw them again after one practice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you hear now kids days, oh, go buy them another pair, Ethel. <laughs> not my house. <laughs> my dad said, well, you're going to learn not to do that again. Anyway. It's a tough way. I, my son... Uh, texted me a photograph before Christmas this year, so about November. Mm-hmm. And he said, are these the shoes you've always been telling me about? I'm like, yes! And I went around, and they are selling them, but I couldn't find them anywhere. Interesting. And it was those old Dr. J leather mm-hmm. tops. And he goes, these are, and he's really into shoes. Right. He said, these are awesome. Good. But I your couldn't find them. Your taste was, that uh, certainly confirms and underscores your great taste as an eighth grader. <laughs> yeah. That's good to hear. Doc, let's take a break. If anybody has an anecdote a la Mike's, that's going to be a tough one to top. Climbing yeah, the fence into like the Hillsboro that. dump. No, not for for <laughs> leather shoes. Are you kidding me? If they save those, the, first of all, they're vintage now. Yeah, yeah. They'd 74, so 75. Yep, yep. Oh, man. Love to hear from any of you on these matters. Tim Vollmer joins us to talk about the golden era and more, the passing of a good friend that Tim said to me was a just one of the great people he ever knew, Steve Diatremont, who was a national champion in the Hammer both in 1969 and 1970 at Oregon State, part of a great era in OSU track and field. Tim Vollmer uh, will join us. He was an All-American for the Beavers in 68 and 69. He joins us at 12.05. In the meantime, and along the way, we'd love to hear some things either via the University Honda text line or a call on the Downward Dog phone line, 
56. Have you tried to sell your RV? Was the offer from the RV dealer embarrassingly low? Garrity's Cash for Campers program will beat any offer for your RV, or we'll give you $500. This is Shannon Nill with Garrity RV Supercenters in Junction City. Now's a great time to sell or consign your travel trailer, fifth wheel, or motorhome so you can upgrade to a newer model that better fits your lifestyle. We've bought hundreds of RVs for cash, and you can be next. Safe vacations and escapes are now more important than ever, so make sure your RV is ready to maximize your fun and enjoyment. It starts by selling your current RV, and we'll give you $500 if Gary can't beat any other Oregon dealer's written offer on your late model RV in good condition. We'll even pay off your existing loan in a hassle-free transaction when we buy your RV. Visit Garrity.com to learn more about Cash for Campers. We don't just sell fun, we guarantee it. Offer not available to commercial parties. Subject to change without notice. See dealer for details. Learn more at Garrity.com. Middleton Heating has been here helping you for over 71 years, 24 hours a day. Middleton can repair, replace, or maintain all types of heating and cooling equipment. Heating unit troubling you? Need repairs or replacement? Give Middleton Heating a call. For new equipment, Middleton offers several financing options and participates in state, federal, and manufacturer incentive programs. Don't forget Middleton's custom sheet metal shop is still taking orders, large or small. You can count on Middleton for all your heating, cooling, and sheet metal needs online at Middleton Heating. Angry Beaver Grill is open for covered and heated outdoor dining as well as dinner-to-go orders Tuesday through Sunday. Get the favorites including Angry Beaver's Reuben and French Dip Sandwiches, Burgers, Tacos, and the Gables Recipe Chicken Bisque Soup and Garlic Croutons. And don't miss Angry Beaver's Friday and Saturday night famous Gables Smoked Ribeye Steak Dinner Special. Angry Beaver Grill open Tuesday through Sunday from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. for covered and heated outdoor dining in the back of the restaurant and for carryout on 4th Street in downtown Corvallis. Angry Beaver, thank you for your support. Your local Qdoba Mexican Eats plays an important role in serving our communities and will continue to provide access to freshly prepared food during this challenging time. While dining rooms are temporarily closed, all of your local Qdoba locations in Salem, Corvallis, Eugene, and throughout Oregon are ready to serve you with their same great flavors, making sure to take all safety precautions out of concern for their dedicated workers and valued customers. For quick and easy takeout ordering, call ahead to your locally owned and operated Qdoba Mexican Eats for curbside pickup. You can also use the app or order online at Qdoba.com. Welcome back to the Joe Beaver Show, where your hosts, Mike Parker and John Warren, have the best interview questions. But in case their guest doesn't answer the question they provide, they know exactly how to handle that situation. Ask my question! The question, jerk! Okay, maybe not that forcefully. Either way, here they are on the Joe Beaver Show trying to do some history some some uh, some check on some history and I, I i started to read i got about a, a third of the way through phil knight's book mm-hmm. and then my son took it with him to santa monica and good. I, 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 I couldn't finish it good now speaking of santa monica that's where phil opened his first retail store Serious? yeah in santa monica so you're it's a nice segue we i'm resorting to wow a quick google search because of dan's text which oh, i'd like yeah, you to read just I'm, look it up i know i know because nobody is yet nobody has has uh, has come has in yet with Nike stings. Never Kenny Moore it. says, things that have been discontinued. Everything good is discontinued, wrote Kenny Moore. 57 Thunderbirds, the television show MASH, <laughs> and Nike stings. Never heard of them. No, never heard of anything. So like that. at some point, we'll probably, and, and well, feel free I, now. I'll Google right now. Yeah, Google it. I'm Googling 
Nike, the first versions, because of the text that you received from Dan on the University Honda text line. Here it is. So, in 1966, Blue Ribbon Sports opened its first retail store in Santa Monica. Doc, had I been a little more aware that 1966 is my year of sports accountability, I could have, had I been on it and going to Santa Monica, which we did occasionally, Dad... Yeah, I might have been able to buy one of the first pair ever, but there wasn't there wasn't really much of a Nike marketing machine then. They weren't even known as Nike at that point. Yeah. So in '67, due to rapidly increasing sales, Blue Ribbon Sports expanded retail and distribution operations on the East Coast in Wellesley, Massachusetts. By 1971, the relationship between Blue Ribbon Sports and the aforementioned Onitsuka Tiger was nearing an end. The company changed to Nike Incorporated in. 1972, and this is what we need to ask Dan about. Yeah, Dan because has in 72, he says the first line of Nike footwear is introduced, including the so-called moon shoes and the Nike Cortez. So he, Dan, is claiming he bought his first Nikes in 1970. So is it possible? Well, when was, when did the swoosh come to play? Well, I'm not sure that story either. It's a good one. Because if not they sure. had a shoe with a swoosh on it, you got Nikes, whether it's yeah, blue right. ribbon or anybody else. So, so what does Dan well, say? Well, Dan writes in to say, I bought a pair of Nikes when I was in sixth grade in 1970 in Portland, and I was looking for a pair of Pumas. I had never heard of Nike before. We bought them. Uh, and brought them out of the house, as I recall. The gang at school thought it was pretty cool when I came back with them. He lived in Corvallis. So they went up to Portland mm. to get him. Oh, yeah, he says, we were on our way to Yakima for vacation. I convinced my dad to stop, and he did. I was the first one in my class to get a pair of Nikes. Well, first of all, Dan, you get all my respect great story. that you were able to get your dad to stop on the mm. way to a vacation and buy you something, because my dad never would have done a thing like that. <laughs> Love you, Dad. Uh, one of my classmates. He writes was Jeff Wagner, Bernie Wagner's yeah. son. We're going to speak of Bernie's great era at 12.05 and one of the tremendous athletes in the history of Oregon State University, Steve Diatremont, who passed a few days ago. I have the answer to the sting. Nike stings? Yeah. Okay. Tim Bulmer will join us at 12.05. What do you got? The Nike, let's see, the Nike the sting is how they, they call it. Nike yeah. the sting was an early running shoe first released in 1978 and I I was that was my age of buying things like that and I don't remember the sting um, it was a low top sneaker with a very low profile giving the image of speed the upper was made using the rust colored suede with green nylon for the side panels the Nike swoosh appears on the side as would be expected and there it is there's a picture of the sting you know, has you that remember come, those? You know what? I'm uh, kind of gold in the front, but I'm green also in the back. wondering if I've seen have they have they come back? I feel like I've seen that shoe. Well, everything recently that was in the past usually comes back just because you think, well, can we market these again? So Kenny Moore wrote the article that I was looking at was 1978, uh, 1988. Pardon yeah. me, lamenting the. So he would only been ten years removed. Yeah, ten years removed from the, the discontinuing loss. of the Nike Sting. But that shoe that you just showed me a photograph of online is a shoe that I feel like I've seen in the more modern times. Yeah, it, the, the Nike The Sting was one of the first running shoes to feature D-ring eyelets for the, the lacing system. They've got the, the plastic mm -hmm. things on top. Um, it's suction-like outsoles or outsole helped for maximum grip while running at high speeds. 
In 2003, the Nike, the Sting, was reissued in 2003 oh, in okay. new colorways. Okay. So you have so, seen yeah. them. Okay. Isn't it funny, though, that since the invention, it may go beyond this. So some of our more um, golden age callers need to check <laughs> in. It may go beyond this, but it seems like all of this started with the PF Flyers. And this idea that if you have your PF Flyers on, you can run faster. You can fly. No, and, and I... I succumbed to the marketing. I, I mean, I was well, susceptible to it as a t- as a ten year old boy. Absolutely. I mean, I would see the. I must have seen the commercials on TV or read an ad in the paper, whatever. But PF Flyers. To go, I remember very vividly the story. It was a, we went at night, and I got a pair of PF Flyers, and when I came out with them on, <laughs> I was running and jumping yeah, and leaping and not praising, but running and jumping and and higher than and saying, "Dad, Mom, look, I'm jumping higher than ever!" Yes. Right? And my dad, "Oh, yes, son, yes." <laughs> you know what? Nothing's changed because it's all about LeBrons, and, yeah. and and Jordans, and and you really feel like you can now. In those, I think you can because don't they have like little cushiony springs? <laughs> yeah. And, and magic this and that. I mean, you probably can, and you're taller. I know I'm taller if I wear those types of shoes. But uh, yeah, the PF Flyers, are you kidding me? And uh, that, that line was highlighted in the movie The Sandlot as he's narrating the kids. And, you know, if you had your PF Flyers on, we all knew we could run faster. Absolutely. And, and, and jump, jump higher. higher. Jumping higher was the key. I mean, <laughs> that, that was the key. School, the lights at Los Altos Elementary School going down the corridors with PF flyers, I could leap and touch them. And and what a great thing. I would never want to take that away. I would never yeah. want to be that adult that says, you know, you really can't. Right. It's, you know, it's just a mind thing. I'd be like, you know what? What a great joy yep. to have this feeling that you can do anything. On the timeline with Nike, to wrap up the thought, in 1971, the co-founder Bill Bowerman in 71 used his wife's waffle iron to create a new sole for footwear that would grip but be lightweight. The shoe, the shoes were called moon shoes because of the resemblance of the waffle-patterned tread to footprints left by astronauts on the moon. Yeah, so he invented the shoe, the sole to the already yes. created shoe. And the, the best part of Without Limits is is having pre, Donald Sutherland giving yeah. the pre-fine, hey, try these out. And he comes back from a run and kind of says, hey, nice shoes. Yep. <laughs> Therein begins a great tale. Tim Vollmer next. Roll tape, please. Here's the microphone. This thing on. This is KEJO Corvallis. Everybody hear me? We're on in five. And QID. 1240 Joe Radio. I'm Jim Chesko with Your Money Now. First-time claims for jobless benefits last week held fairly steady across the nation. The Labor Department says there were 787,000 claims filed in the week, down just 3,000 from the prior week. Separately, November's U.S. trade deficit jumped a seasonally adjusted 8% from October to more than $68 billion, a 14-year high. After slumping yesterday, technology shares are surging today, pacing a solid overall market advance. The indexes are in record territory. The Dow Industrial is up 229 points. The S&P 500 ahead by 54. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite up 304 points. Shares of Victoria's secret parent L Brands are up 6.5%. This after the company said holiday sales exceeded its expectations and it offered an upbeat outlook for the fourth quarter, the fiscal fourth quarter. The company says same-store sales rose 5% over the nine-week holiday period through January 2nd. Making another 11-month high for U.S. oil prices, they were up 20 cents today. That's your money now. I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years. I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea. 
At first, I thought it was what I was eating. I kept thinking it was stomach issues. So I did my research and talked to my doctor, and we finally uncovered the truth. It, it was, was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food. It can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease. So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening. But there's good news. EPI is manageable, so don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could, could I, I have EPI? Street Corvallis. Your local Qdoba Mexican Eats plays an important role in serving our communities and will continue to provide access to freshly prepared food during this challenging time. While dining rooms are temporarily closed, all of your local Qdoba locations in Salem, Corvallis, Eugene, and throughout Oregon are ready to serve you with their same great flavors, making sure to take all safety precautions out of concern for their dedicated workers and valued customers. For quick and easy takeout ordering, call ahead to your locally owned and operated Qdoba Mexican Eats for curbside pickup. You can also use the app or order online at Qdoba.com. Hi, this is Matt Vaskersian with another little-known legend of sports. Most weekend golfers dream of a hole-in-one just once in their lifetime, but a Minnesota dentist named Jim Scheller managed to accomplish the feat twice in the same round. In May of 2002, the 60-year-old Scheller was playing at the Golden Valley Country Club when he aced his tee shot on the 170-yard 14th hole. Three holes later, Scheller stepped to the tee at the 175-yard 17th hole and watched as his five-iron shot landed on the green in front of the pin and rolled in for his second hole-in-one in four holes. For the record, Scheller is more than your average weekend duffer. He won the 1990 Minnesota Senior Open and the 1991 State Amateur Tournament. Still, the National Golf Foundation estimated the odds of two aces in the same round at 67 million to one, and the feat's never been matched by a professional on the PGA Tour. Jim Scheller's two holes in one in the same round make him a little-known legend of sports. Have big plans for your laundry room? So does Lowe's. Right now, save big on a Samsung large-capacity top-load washer and dryer that was $949 and now is just $679 each. Samsung's newest washing machine comes in a stylish champagne finish and has more capacity for large loads to cut down on wash time. And with the innovative Samsung dryer, set sensor dry to help dry clothes more evenly. Shop at Lowe's now with free delivery. Valid through 120, U.S. only. Liberty Mutual Insurance Company presents and Doug. Okay, class, let's bump it up to nine. Come on, Limu, keep pedaling. We gotta build our endurance to let more people know that Liberty Mutual customizes your car insurance. So you only pay for what you need. Pick up the pace, bird legs. Hey, don't talk to Limu like that. Ah. 
I'm not. I'm talking to you. Liberty, 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 Liberty. Get a customized quote at LibertyMutual.com. Time to enter the Magic Kingdom. Denise, would you kindly clear the wheels? Okay, here we go. On three, one, two. Tweets and texts, faces and books. Tweets and texts and faces and books. Seems like it's more about FM and color TV. In such an age as this, is there any room left for something as simple as radio? We believe there is. Touchdown, Beaver! He's got a chance to go! 20, 15, 10, 5! Touchdown, Beaver! Back in the end zone! Caught! Touchdown, Beavers! The Joe Beaver Show is on the air with Mike Parker and John Warren, two men on a mission to prove that AM radio is a viable and modern source for news and entertainment. So gather the whole family. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on. If you don't have one, fret not. I'll have the management send you up a radio. Be a part of the triumphant return of amplitude modulation. This is the big one, boys. This is the one that brings us back. Soon, AM radio will reign king once more. <laughs> it's the Joe Beaver Show on the home of the beavers. Cool beats. Beats. 12.40 Joe Radio. Our second hour today, we thank you for joining us. We'll have some open phones a little bit later and discuss... The latest news from the transfer portal. Jonathan Smith will uh, address the media today, and I poked around a little bit on that. Coach Smith, it, there's nothing revelatory or a major news announcement or anything. It's just sort of a, a summing up of the past season and a looking ahead. He's not free yet, I don't believe, and, until students are on campus and enrolled. and may, they, He may have something to say about what's been going on in the portal, but whatever the case, We'll hear from Jonathan later and be able to talk about that tomorrow. As we head into the second hour, uh, we've been talking about Tim Bulmer, part of the golden era of track and field at Oregon State. Tim himself, an OSU Hall of Famer, a PIL Hall of Famer coming out of uh, Benson Tech in the discus National runner-up in back-to-back seasons, All-American in 68 and 69, the 1971 AAU National Championship, a silver medal in the Pan Am Games, competed in Munich in 1972. So part of the great tradition of track and field at Oregon State, but the impetus to reach out and to get to meet Tim for the first time on this show is a sad occasion and the sad news of the passing of another Oregon State track and field great, Steve D'Atremont, a 1992 Hall of Famer at Oregon State. And one of the, uh, the great athletes in the history of our university, but according to Tim Vollmer, who texted me yesterday, Tim, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you for taking time. As great of an athlete as he was, your text that caught my attention most was what a tremendous person Steve was. So our condolences to you on the loss of a friend and a teammate. Thank you for taking time for us today uh, from Missoula. What can you tell us about uh, Steve D'Atremont? 
man, Steve was, you know, besides being my best friend for the last 55 years, um, he was a hard worker. He really was and cared about people. I remember when we started, of course, I don't know how much time you have. A lot. For, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because when I first came to Oregon State, you know, I was just a dumb kid from Portland, and I was recruited by um, uh, by Sam Bell. Mm-hmm. But about halfway through the summer, I got another call from Bob Timmons, and he was going to be the head coach, and he was bringing Jim Ryan along with us. And then later on, I guess Timmons got a better offer from Kansas, and Bernie Wagner came in. And during that recruiting, it was, we had several All-Americans, uh, Dick Fosbury, Willie Turner, Ole Trenton, um, and myself. And Steve was a walk-on. And he wasn't, you know, huge, like, you know, most shot and discus throwers. So he tried to find his niche. But he had something he used to, he would sneak into the gym at, at University of Oregon and work out uh, with some of the athletes there. And then when he came, he brought a lifting uh, persona to Oregon State. I had never lifted before, and at the time, our gym was just, we called it the dungeon because there was no windows, and it was a small room in the basement of uh, Gill Coliseum. And he got everybody into the uh, regiment lifting for, you know, the bench, the squats, the cleans, mm-hmm. and he worked for years. In fact, at the time, even the football players didn't lift. Mm-hmm. And I remember the basketball players, they, you know, they were afraid that they'd get bulky muscles and wouldn't be able to relax. But over the years, he, he got even some of the uh, basketball players to work, work out. <clears throat> like I say, at the time, um, he wanted to find something that he could do, so he decided to try the hammer. And <clears throat> at the, you know, there was no real hammer throws or hammer coaches on the East Coast. Uh, the only good hammer throw at the time was Bob in their session out of Rhode Island. And so along the sophomore year, he started looking, and he heard about a coach that had just defected from Hungary, uh, Gabor Shimini, and he had defected, and he was living in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, which is a long way up there. Yeah. So long about... Um, after Christmas vacation, I believe it was our junior year, I was, uh, well, yeah, Steve, myself, Rob Roder, and Rob's brother, Ronnie, <clears throat> hopped in a um, Toyota Land Cruiser and drove all day and all night going up to North Battleford to see this coach. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've ever ridden in a, you know, those old land cruisers, but there's no insulation. I remember in the morning we woke up, or I woke up, Steve and I were in the back seat, and I decided to make breakfast. So I took the old uh, Coleman stove 
and tried to find some eggs. And the eggs that were sitting right next to me on the seat, I cracked, and they were frozen solid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we wound up staying at the Ambassador Hotel, which was on the kind of the seedy side of town, 25 bucks for the week with only one bed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we threw the mattress on the floor, and two slept on the mattress, and the other two on the box springs. Hmm. And if we wanted to throw outside, we had to dig through a couple feet of snow, chip two five inches of ice, and throw gasoline <laughs> to burn the ring so we could get you know some traction. Yeah. But, you know, he went back two to three years for Gabor, and I think he spent some time in the summer. But, you know, it must have paid off because he, you know, wound up winning the NCAA 69-70. Yeah, that, that's an amazing story, Tim, in yeah. its own right. So you guys went up there. to, to and that, That's just an incredible story to me. Did you try your hand at it when he was up there in the snow throwing it? I mean, did you give it a shot? Well, I threw the discus while I was up there. Right. Oh, okay. Which, which, is, which is really funny because when the discus would hit, it'd be out of sight. <laughs> but it would pop back up about 20 feet farther. And it always came back up. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was rather finger-freezing because, it, like I say, it was 10 below zero. Oh, my gosh. That's an amazing yeah. trip. To, I mean, I, is that the one and only time you went with him, or did, or did he go? Did you go with him on some of those summer journeys up to Saskatchewan? No, I went up two winter journeys. Okay, and then I didn't go the third when they went in the summer. You know, it's interesting, uh, Tim, that that there were no. I mean, that was the way an enterprising person such as Steve found a way to learn, improve and home his technique and drove in the wintertime to Saskatchewan to do it. So did did you know, did he essentially, was that his training in the discipline of the hammer throw? I mean, Bernie was a, a track and field outstanding coach. Did he also try to learn to help in the spring season? Or were there, were there other people on who who could work with him on that back here on the OSU campus? No, it really, Bernie was a good, uh, you know, high jump in middle distance. Mm-hmm. And Chuck McNeil, you know, he was distance. And, but truthfully, with Steve and myself, Steve would tell me what he wanted me to look for. And then I would tell him what I wanted him to look for when I threw. Hmm. And, you know, we just, yeah, we worked together. That's a and great. Of course, yeah, yeah. remember back in Bell Field, the javelin runway was behind with a uh, hammer uh, right in front of that, and the discus ring was right in front of that. And we would throw pick turns throwing over each other. Mm-hmm. So it was, you always had to be, you know, looking. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Tim Vollmer joining us, uh, OSU Hall of Famer, talking about the passing of uh, Steve Diatramon. Thank you for taking us back to those early uh, amazing days with that story. Your friendship with Steve, it, it developed then, it sounded like, in a very deep way. Tell us a bit more about him just as a person. When you talk about what a great person he was, 
Tell us about about that, if you would, Tim, and how what makes you say that about him? Well, it's just, you know, over the years, we've spent so much time together, and he is, you know, he's the godfather of my daughter, Chelsea, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I was the godfather of his daughter, Andrea. And it's just, you know, talking, because my senior year, actually the year after, my scholarship ended. And so I wound up uh, living in my Rambo station wagon for a quarter. And I would sleep in Steve's driveway and then go have breakfast and dinner in Avery Park. Showering in Gill Coliseum. But, you know, he was always, you know, be there for me. He'd let me in. We, you know, we did stuff together. We traveled in the summer. Um, yeah, it was just, he just tried, yeah, treated everybody with respect and helped out any way he could. He started, um, you know, he coached uh, high school. I mean, after, you know, he coached at Oregon State as an assistant coach for a couple of years, and then uh, as a throwing coach there, I believe, through um, 83. But, you know, I'm not positive on that. But, you know, and even after he got to Denver, like I say, he coached the high school kids whenever he could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've read some things about him and heard great things about him. Tim Vollmer joining us. Tim, if you, when you talk about an era, there is a great article online about 68 and 69 in particular being the golden era for OSU track and field, sixth in the national championships in 68, third in 1969. You were uh, an All-American in both of those years, the dual meets were phenomenal events. What can you tell us about being part of that team with Steve and all of the other great athletes, Jim Barkley, Dick Fosbury, Terry Thompson, you mentioned Willie Turner, Steve Kelly, John Radetich. I mean, <laughs> that the, the superstars across the board. What yeah. was it like to be yeah. part of that, those teams? Well, I tell you, it was like a family. Although you remember at the end of the '60s, there were some there were uh, problems with racial discrimination, and we had some you know, stuff going on on campus. Mm-hmm. I remember Don Don Parrish was a, a good herder, and he wanted to wear black socks. And you know, at the time, we wore white socks, but running through the wash with our orange uniforms. They all turned orange, and he just he didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So we wore black socks. And then I remember, uh, you know, when Sports Illustrated brought it up, and the Black Panthers came to Oregon State. And so I was uh, co-captain with Greg Marks at the time, and so we had a meeting and said, you know, if you wear your black socks, We'll all wear black socks. And you know, it was just that type of thing. We tried mm-hmm. to stay a team in the mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. The, du- the dual meets, Tim, and that's the thank you for sharing that. The dual meets, I, I want to ask you about when you won the AAU championship in 71 in a moment as well, but 
the dual meets in terms of how phenomenal they were, what were they like as being a student at Oregon State, but the students and the community and the fans, what kind of crowds do you remember, the energy and the excitement about those meets? Oh, yes. I mean, all we had were the old, uh, you know, stands on the mm-hmm. side, but they were filled all the time, even when it snowed or rained. Mm-hmm. And the crowd was always there. And even sometimes the you know, crowd could come on the field. I remember <laughs> uh, my favorite memory in track and field was not really a discus throw. It was when I was throwing the shot. It was my senior year, University of Oregon, final meet of the year. Um, Bernie had, you know, profiled the whole thing out that we were going to lose my, my three points. And at the time, I was throwing my best. was like 54 feet, two inches, something like that. And uh, the University of Oregon, they had both throwers that were in high 55s. Um, and my first throw, I had a lifetime best. And I, I can't remember his name. Anyway, the University of Oregon guy, he had a lifetime death on his next throw. Mine was, an, again, a lifetime death and beat him. He came back and beat me. <laughs> I came back and beat him, and we went right to the final throw. And, and I remember Steve was on the side just screaming at me, and I looked around, and the crowd had moved from the stands and were around the ring. And... uh on his last single, Jim Sadel, on his last throw, he threw 56, 11 and a half. Oh, my God. And, you know, so I stepped in, and I was so excited, I couldn't even think. <laughs> and I came across, boom, hit it, 57 feet even. <laughs> we wound up beating Oregon. Yeah, that was the highlight, I think, of all my career. That's, again, these are things, Tim, we really appreciate you sharing these stories with us, things I've not heard. That's a that's a fascinating story in its own right, too. Those dual meet wins over Oregon in both 68 and 69, you had another big one over UCLA in 69. Bill Dellinger said, the late Bill Dellinger said, that it was the demise, in his opinion, of the dual meet that, began to lead to a decline in track and field that 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 college track and field was built on the dual meet do you do you concur with that in a sense of of what began to happen and Oregon State ends up so sadly cutting track in 88 but Dellinger pointed to the demise of the dual meet as a big reason for it do you see it that way too I do I really do and truthfully I think I could even go even higher I see the demise of track and field in the United States is, you know, we no longer have USA versus Russia, USA versus Germany. Mm-hmm. Dual meets were, they were, yeah, they were great. They really were. Yeah. But you're right, Oregon, Oregon State, uh, dual meets, I mean, you would live for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. 
And to be part of that team, too, Tim, you were talking about Steve Diatremont and your stories have been precious along those lines. But as a teammate of Dick Fosbury's and seeing what he was doing, what was that like to watch him revolutionize a sport? Yeah, it was. I remember uh, Dick's freshman year, Bernie <laughs> took the whole year and tried to teach him back to the Western world. Mm-hmm. And maybe he just couldn't do it. And finally, he just said, No, I want to go back to my old style. And yeah, he just blossomed. <laughs> yeah, Dick, then uh, in the dungeon, you know, Dick and I would have uh, jump reach contests, and I would beat him. <laughs> but he'd come off one leg, and I'd have to come off two. I remember because um, two years I was doing jump re- or jump squats with 300 pounds and heavy squats and running stadium seats on the leg, and my jump reach went from 28 inches to 41 and a half. Oh, gosh. In, in about a year and a half. Wow. And I think that's really what did it all. Mm-hmm. Tim. Now I've had knee replacements. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tim Bulmer joining us, uh, OSU Hall of Famer on the Joe Beaver Show. Tim, you're the first person I think I've ever spoken with that competed in Munich. And, you know, I, before we get there and what your your recollections are of that experience, the 1971 AAU championship, were you competing for a New York City club then? Under what banner were you competing to win the AAU championship in 71? And how big, how big of an event in, types, in terms of a crowd where it happened was that championship in 71? It was, uh, yes, I was competing in New York AC because I had been stationed there the year before, and they were the only club that had money that you know, would help go to different meets. But I also, I was mainly competing for the Army at that time. Hmm. And, and, yeah, we had just come back from World Sism Games in Viareggio, Italy, and I got back like, uh, well, <laughs> like this story. Um, yeah, you say you had time. Anyway, computer sure. in the original Italy took a uh, C-130 from San Diego to New Jersey to Newfoundland to Iceland to Azores to the original four days, 40-some hours in the air. Oh, my gosh. And uh, after the meet, we took off the next day, and we landed in Madrid, Spain, at 2 in the morning. And my CEO said, you know, you're not going to get back to the Nationals until almost the day before, so I'll try to get you a hop. So let's do it. So he went to bed, and within five minutes, he opens the door, and he says, you got 15 minutes going on a tarmac. There's a jet coming in. <laughs> so it was Steve Wilhelm and myself. We run out there, and the sergeant behind the desk, I say, hey, Sarge, what kind of plane are we going to leave on? And if, I don't know. They won't identify themselves. They're on some kind of secret mission. I said, what? He says, have a seat. When they come in, we'll let you know. <laughs> so 
Ten minutes later, he comes in, he's shaking his head, and he says, you lucky son of a gun. Come here and see what you're going to go to D.C. on. Walk out, it was Air Force One. He took it right to D.C. Pretty nice. That's a... These are golden yeah. stories, Tim. I really appreciate that. I've never heard anything like that either. So where did that 71 AAU championship take place? Uh, it was in Eugene. Oh, in Eugene. And I, so I assume mm-hmm. there was a huge crowd then, too. I mean, the reason I ask about the crowd is the dual meets were always packed, as you say, at Bell. I was reading an article about the AAU championships in uh, with Marty LaCorey in 1967 in Bakersfield, and the, the writer says, before a crowd of 11,600-plus for an AAU championship in Bakersfield, and again, I'm just thinking about the place of the sport in the country in that time and in place, I assume that Eugene was packed for that AAU championship. I mean, it just, what a golden era for the sport, huh? Yes, it was. I mean, as much as, you know, we were you know, always at war with University of Oregon, I think now we probably got Oregon friends in, in Oregon status. But you're talking about, and I think what you want is what the crowd does to the throw. Mm-hmm. Okay, my... The only time I've ever been affected by the crowd was in 72 in the Olympic trials. I had, a week before the trials, I went into a slump. I really couldn't do anything. I just, my timing was off. Everything was off. And so on the qualifying, you know, I made it. I was like in sixth place. And I went into the starting of the finals and after my third throw, and I was still in, like, sixth place. And I had lost all my psych. I, it was it. I was over. I, I wasn't going to make the team. And I, they announced my name, and I started to walk toward the ring. And I don't know, just 10,000 people stood up, and I hear this, ball, mer, ball, mer, ball, mer. The whole crowd was just, and... I could feel it in my toes, and it just came up and boom me in my hands, and I said, I'm in. And I stepped in the ring, and that's when I made third place and made the team. That was, I'll uh, always remember that. You know, the tip, Oregon fans were great. Yeah, no, the, and that's the, the, the appreciation for you in that moment transcended the rivalry, as bitter and, and competitive as it was. They appreciated your talent, your unique skill in your event, and cheered you that way. That's that's a wonderful story, too. But it also, in, our, in 2021, it reminds me of how much we're missing in all of these events to not have fans around. Fans are, the, fans are what make it all worthwhile in that sense, to have people in the stands and people in the arenas. Uh, so I, I'm sure you, Tim, just telling that story tells me how much you appreciated what a crowd can mean. If, I mean, like I say, the Oregon fans always have been tremendous. Yeah. I mean, even when we were doing the dual meets, they could be, you know, antagonistic <laughs> too, but that's, that was part of the fun. Right. Hey, <laughs> hey Tim, so that's a great story too, but tell us if you can, uh, 
Munich, of course, in our, as, as history rolls on, we, we look back. I remember watching some of the Olympics and the terrible images and so on in 72 at Munich. You were there. What, what, what about that whole experience? Not only, you know, what happened in the Olympic mm-hmm. Village, but just for you in that time in your life to go to Munich in 72 representing the United States after that uh, qualifying effort in Eugene. From there, what was that whole experience like, including the terrorism that took place and where you were during all of that? I I tell you, I mean, the Olympic Games is, you know, it's in its own, yeah, its own meat. I mean, because just the amount of work it takes and the luck is mm-hmm. doing the best on a particular day to get there. And then you have that day to do it when you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, I, I came back a little bit before the game, but then like two weeks before, again, lost my timing and the site wasn't there. But um, still, I wound up taking eighth place. Mm-hmm. Which was, I mean, it was, it's fine. I mean, I made the Olympic Games, and, and yeah, it's the village itself with all the athletes was the major part. It really was. But right afterwards, um, John Powell and his wife and I went to Vienna, and we were gone for a day or two. And I came back, and we got back about 10 o'clock that night and stayed up. We were in a room. There were 12 of us in one room, and we shared, you know, the common bathroom in the village. And I went to sleep, and when I got up in the morning, I slept in a little bit longer, and I looked out, and George Woods was sitting over on the side. He says, hey, did you hear about the Israelis and the Arabs? Uh, and I said, no. So he sat there and talked for about 10 minutes as what's going on. And as I was walking the door to go breakfast, I said, hey, George, what country did that happen? He says, country, it's right there. Right. And I, yeah. So I walked out and walked to the building next to us, and you could see the heads and the athletes on the grass throwing the frisbee and eating. And, but there were athletes on the grass throwing the frisbee and eating lunch and just watching like nothing was happening. And I remember after breakfast, I went down in underneath there was a, a parking lot, and there were hundreds of soldiers with weapons. And it was, yeah, it was just, it was, yeah, just like a dream. Were you? Half the people, it, yeah. This is interesting. You're saying there are people throwing frisbees down? I mean, that's a part of it I'd not heard of. So there wasn't a general widespread gripping of fear amongst the United States athletes in the village at that time or the other athletes from other nations? Um, You know, it's really interesting because there's about a two- or three-day period in my memory that I I can't even remember that version. Mm -hmm. The only next thing I remember is being on a plane coming home. But it was at the time, yeah, there were, you know, it was things as usual. But, you know, they did have the ceremonies 
and um, after that time. You know, yeah, it was just surreal. Yeah, Tim Vollmer joining us, OSU Hall of Famer, and competed in the discus at the 1972 Munich Olympics. We'll close here in a few minutes, Tim, and some concluding thoughts about your great friend and teammate, the late Steve D'Atremont. But one other thing about that, I, I don't know if you've seen the film called Without Limits with Donald Sutherland playing Bill Dellinger, uh, uh, Bill Bowerman, pardon me, but. In the, in the film, and Hollywood can take liberties, clearly, we know that, but in the film, there's a scene where Bowerman is addressing all of you, all of the athletes, and it, it's always struck me as whether true or not, what the actor Sutherland says as Bowerman has struck me as true, that Bowerman's addressed all of you and said something to the effect of, do not think that what you're doing here is frivolous. You're competing in these games is important. It's what nations have done in laying down arms to compete against one another in sport, that it's part of the ancient Olympic history in Greece and so on. Did a speech like that happen, or was that a Hollywood invention? Do you remember anything like that? No, I, I don't remember that. I mean, Bill did, you know, give some talks. You know, that most of it I remember were, you know, even before that okay. uh, happened. Um, but it sounds like something Bill would say. He was pretty good. Mm -hmm. I remember the best headline that I ever got was Bill Barman after that last um, dual meet. The headline was uh, Bill Barman says, Mr. Vollmer came to compete. <laughs> that just, yeah. yeah. Bill was, yeah, he was a, a good man. That's a that's a great tribute, and in closing, Tim, back to, and it's a it's an honor to get to talk to you and to meet you and visit with you in this context. As I said, I'm sorry that the context in which we have this conversation about your your own amazing career in life was the the news of the passing of Steve D'Atremont, and you shared with me these these have been some hard times of late for you and and losing good friends. So, how are you holding up in all of it, Tim? I mean it. This must really hit home and really hit you hard about Steve, but you he hasn't, unfortunately, of late in Oregon State Athletics, not the only one. You've lost some good friends, it sounds like. Yes. I'm, even last month, uh, Ernie Robinson, he was a teammate of mine for a couple of years in the Army, a tremendous athlete. He must have come to COVID. Hmm. Um, and, yeah. I mean, it seems like there's only a couple friends left that I can tell stories with that even understand, you know. <laughs> it's, you know. Oh, the one thing on Steve's, um, I just talked about an hour ago with Andrea, Steve's daughter, and she says there's going to be a funeral on the 19th at 12.30 on Mountain Standard Time. It's for the family only. But she says she's going to try to live stream the yeah, event so that the people would want to participate. Yes, Tim, but and I may, yeah, I may um, reach back out to you off the air about the exact details and time of that so we can get that word out here, too. But uh, 
I really appreciate you taking time for us, Tim, uh, in, in a very sad time. When you talk about the stories, these are these stories are golden. They're they're beautiful, and we appreciate you taking time to share your thoughts with us about Steve and in your own career at Oregon State and beyond. Thank you for the time today, Tim. It was an honor to have you on. Well, I thank you. Thank you, Tim. Tim Vollmer, uh, Oregon State All American. John, the. First of all, I had to leave. And I know come you back. had to tend to some things. I didn't want to interrupt, but so what? that was fantastic. Gosh, the things you find out. I, I mean, know. that first story about meeting Steve, and there's nobody to teach him the hammer. Yeah. So he drives through the snow in the winter to Saskatchewan to get tutored in the art of hammer throwing, and, and just imagine to think about the images of. Then Tim throwing the discus into the snow. Yeah, <laughs> my ten degrees below zero, working out in the hammer and the discus in Saskatchewan. Amazing! It just shows you that if you want to do something, you find a way yeah. to do it. We'll break on that note. If you'd like to comment in any way, some of you may have known Tim, gone to school with him, know him, known of him, watched him in those great dual meets. Four nine seven fifty three fifty six four nine seven five three five six. Thanks for joining us today on twelve forty Joe Radio. Woodstock's Pizza on Kings Boulevard in Corvallis really is pizza for all. Whether you're thinking meat mania, vegan victory, vegetarian virtuousness, or whatever you want to name your pizza, Woodstock's Pizza has it. They have over 35 fresh toppings to choose from, four different crust options, including cauliflower and gluten-free, and cheese choices that include vegan and dairy-free. Woodstock's Pizza on Kings Boulevard in Corvallis really is pizza for all all woodstock's pizza on king's boulevard in corvallis trace comes inside lays it in and counts he's fouled your tax and wealth management coaches paul witzke david mendenhall bill heck and robert berry are ready to put you in the game perhaps you're looking to save money for your kids college start your retirement or need business coaching tax and wealth management has what you need to execute that game plan into a victory with 40 years in business tax and wealth management in corvallis has the strategy you need for tax planning and saving for your financial future. Visit taxandwealthmanagement.com or call 541-753-4185 to get in the game. Are you already settling into the winter doldrums? Well, hold on to your hat. The Natty Dresser is holding a week-long grand reopening celebration January 11th through 16. We'll have games, prizes, raffles, in-store specials, live music, and so much more. All to celebrate our new location at the corner of 2nd and Broad Alban Street in the heart of historic downtown Albany. Check out our Facebook page for details. The Natty Dresser, purveyors of quality menswear. Dress well, be confident, find success. Unified Insurance Group is your local independent insurance agency in Corvallis. They represent numerous insurance companies and specialize in auto, home, and business insurance. See Mike Eaves, Taylor Starr, and Tom Worth. They'll help find an insurance plan that works best for you. So if you're looking for auto, home, or business insurance, see the Unified Insurance Group. 320 Southwest 3rd Street in downtown Corvallis. They're your hometown team, always putting you first. Have you tried to sell your RV? Was the offer from the RV dealer embarrassingly low? Garrity's Cash for Campers program will beat any offer for your RV or we'll give you $500. 
This is Shannon Nill with Garrity RV Supercenters in Junction City. Now's a great time to sell or consign your travel trailer, fifth wheel, or motorhome so you can upgrade to a newer model that better fits your lifestyle. We've bought hundreds of RVs for cash and you can be next. Safe vacations and escapes are now more important than ever, so make sure your RV is ready to maximize your fun and enjoyment. It starts by selling your current RV and we'll give you $500 if Gary can't beat any other Oregon dealer's written offer on your late model RV in good condition. We'll even pay off your existing loan in a hassle-free transaction when we buy your RV. Visit Garrity.com to learn more about Cash for Campers. We don't just sell fund, we guarantee it. Offer not available to commercial parties. Subject to change without notice. See dealer for details. Learn more at Guarantee.com. Albany Rifle and Pistol Club offers a combined Oregon and Utah concealed carry class and a basic pistol class, both open to the public. When you complete the combined concealed carry class, ARPC will provide everything you need, including the photo and fingerprint cards that are required by Utah. The basic pistol class is designed for the new gun owner and will teach you how they work and how to use them. Class costs and schedules are on the calendar at ARPC.info. You'll also receive a coupon worth 25 bucks off a membership at Albany Rifle and Pistol Club, a safe and fun place to shoot. The other, uh, there were many great stories Tim Vollmer just shared. Mm -hmm. The other one that I absolutely loved amongst many, the transcending of the rivalry. Maybe it's easier. You can be more magnanimous when you're at the Olympic trials, and now we're all together, right? Yeah. I mean, we're we're cheering for you to, re and it wasn't as though he was competing for third necessarily against an, an Oregon thrower. Maybe he was, but it, it doesn't sound like it. Right. So at Old Hayward Field, ten thousand plus. What a great story that is. That Tim was saying, I just I didn't have it. And the crowd, and the crowd yeah. inspired him. Yeah. Volmer, yeah. Volmer. That's a that's a tribute on a lot of levels to I, the I crowd at Oregon well, I don't and think, their knowledge of the sport and what was at stake yeah. and cheering for a guy from up the road. I love that story. Yeah, and if you're going for your country's right. team and it just happens to be at their facility, right? They're not going to pull that against parse you. Out Oregon State versus Oregon. I would hope not. No. I would hope not. Not no. when it comes to that. No. It transcends it. Yeah. But still, it's it it meant a lot to Tim. You yeah. could tell. Yeah. That just, and and it inspired him. Well, sure. But 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 wait a minute. What do you mean it inspired him? I thought that athletes don't need television broadcasters and fans. I think that's one of the the many things that coming through whenever we do finally come through all the way, we're not there. We're a long way from there with all the postponements, Utah, Colorado, cancellations, and all of that that's gone on. We are a long way from being through it. But when, if we do, mm -hmm. and fans return, Johnny, I do think one of the things that we will appreciate more than ever, fans in the stands, crowds, enthusiasm, energy, when, when fans can return, we hope that there will be a full return and appreciation. But that story alone from Tim Bulmer reminded me of what fans can mean, what fans can do. Third down fans on defense and research. What, oh, just a gosh. lot of things. It's, uh, Shaking the, the rim against Stanford in 
the Cardinal Arizona. I can't I think it was the 98-99 season and the power of Gill the year before I got here. Do any of you remember the three upset wins over three top ten schools that year? Two at least, and then a win over Oregon as well. I don't, Oregon wasn't a top ten team, but two wins over top ten schools at Gill in that amazing year for Eddie and the Beavs. Can somebody give me chapter and verse, the definition? There was an Arizona. I think it might have been the win over Arizona. Dickerson? I, I Can somebody tell me, oh, yeah, I was there, and it was – the crowd was so loud mm-hmm. during free throw attempts, I think, by an Arizona player that he missed them both or he needed to make one of the two and he missed them both and the Beavers went. I mean, because the the basket was almost shaking with the noise. There, it's there's so many stories. I mean, <clears throat> we've never been through this before. So up until this year, there hasn't been empty stadiums anywhere, uh, save for you know games that aren't being attended. But the stories. I mean, it's not it's not even a question about fan involvement, the noise, mm-hmm. and. You know, there used to be, I would come across an occasional real cocky guy in high school or something that would say, I can play, I just want to play. I don't care about fans. Well, I just want to play. Yes. And I I remember saying them even in my youth, just go, be quiet. That's the whole point of it all. Everybody just, you know, I don't know that anybody says, I want to be a pro player so I can just make a lot of money. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I mean that is a great, great uh, reason for it, and may and have your career be yeah. that that's what you do. But it's also for the fanfare and the trimmings. Yes, the fan adulation. Even if you're a humble person, you like to play in front of fans just because uh, it brings an, an energy to the arena. Um, and yeah, we all love to play the sport, and that's what we do when we don't make the pros and we still play. When we still love it and we still play mm-hmm. at noon ball at Gill Coliseum, which has long since died out. We're doing it because we love the game. And when we go to the gyms and, and, and all the different rec centers and do it. And that's most of the world, by the way. So. True. There are certain artists. When you talk, you, you, on, it's an interesting dichotomy, it seems, at times for the athletes who will say, and they're right, that it doesn't. We, we can't worry about what the fans are saying or not saying, whether there are a lot right. of fans or no fans. We So the bubble, the bubble works in that in terms of a, a, a professional discipline. Yeah. The athletes are so skilled and trained and disciplined that it doesn't, it, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether there's any fans or not. If you remember LeBron James early, remember when the whole bubble idea was broached uh-huh. or no fans in the stands, when they were talking about trying to continue the NBA season and came up with the bubble in Orlando and got it done. But remember, LeBron was saying, I don't even know if I want to do this right. if there are no fans in the stands. Right. Which is the, I mean, and, and I get the idea that, look, you, you want to, assuming, which we all did for 100 years up until last spring, you're going to be playing in front of big crowds. Right. So that's just an assumption that we will all have, and we will when, when it gets back to uh, to normal. Then, then the rhetoric is, I don't, I I will train myself to be disciplined and and to not pay attention to right. the crowd. Right. But so you, that's not the same as saying I don't. Care I don't if there's care a crowd about it exactly. Now, 
there have been a few folks over the years, one in particular, who kind of tried to have it both ways. Ted Williams, the late, great, splendid splitter Teddy Ballgame. Ted Williams was such a perfectionist, an artist, that on a certain level, he, he even said, he spit at his own Boston Red Sox fans who would boo him for whatever. Williams had, people talk about a love-hate relationship. It was, it was mostly hate-hate until kind of the end. You know, people still appreciated his, the fact that he was an artiste, that he was a great hitter and hit a lot of home runs and helped the Red Sox. They didn't win much, but he was a, just a, Superb craftsman, so I'm sure the Fenway fans forgave him a lot of stuff because of his sheer talent. But it was an often time and a long time contentious relationship for Williams with his Red Sox fans to the point that what ended up being Teddy's last ball game when he went out on top hitting a home run on in his last at bat. <laughs> That's one of the great ways to go out. He homers and his career is over. 521st home run, 10,000 fan, 10, fans at Fenway. Not that many. Mm-hmm. Then, but they, and they, and it was pretty well known Teddy was going to be playing his last game at home and 10 show up, 10,000. Wow. The relationship had been contentious and the Red Sox had been lousy. And Ted, essentially, over the years, you said he didn't give many interviews. He didn't. He wasn't part of the star-making machinery and PR mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. He didn't care. He said, "I don't need to do all that. I have a job to do. I'm going to hit and hit and keep hitting. I don't care about the fans or the writers or anybody else. Just watch me hit." Now, when I say he wanted to have it both ways, he also said. What's your goal in life? Remember his famous statement, I want to be the guy that when I walk down a street, there people goes, say, there goes, number, there goes the greatest hitter that greatest ever lived. Hitter, then that was stolen from the natural, by the way. True. Well, or, or the, I mean, natural the natural stole it from, stole it from <laughs> Teddy Ballgame, but that was his whole definition. There but goes see, Roy Hobbs, the see now, how would we know time. if he is? Well, the fans, the writers, the games on radio yeah. have to build that up. Right. You have the to have fans have to opinions. see it. The fans have to know. You have to. So Ted didn't want to cooperate with what it meant to be a star. Yeah. But at the end, he wanted to be known. There goes the greatest. <laughs> well, how do you know? You can't have it both ways. And, yeah. and you find and he wanted it. You find that the 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 more contentious and uh, combative, if you will, brings more problems. So if your if your point is to have less. Uh, input and and less uh, distractions. You're going to get more distractions by being a jerk than you are if you're friendly. Just play the game. Yeah, just play. In <laughs> fact, and not even you don't even have to be Mister Great, Mister. Oh, I love you. The, to me, the 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 one athlete that sticks out the most, and and you could pick several from this team, but the one that sticks out the most, who was a superstar, but everybody loved, loved, and was a superstar, but was very low key, Clyde Drexler. Yeah, I mean, he was such a nice guy. Yes. And I know from from experience and fact that he was a nice guy. In if you ran into him in the grocery store, yes, he was. He would go to the grocery store, and yet he was a superstar. Yeah, I did an interview with Clyde at a book signing, and I took my uh, nephew with me, young, 10, 10 years old, or about at the time, and. 
when Clyde was done, I just I have to you know take this time to introduce, and he was great with my nephew. Yeah, yeah. Just chatted him up. How, what sports do you like? What do you know? What perfect. Yep. Perfect. Yep. And in terms of what you want from a superstar, and I think I think too that being so well liked like that, fans kind of left him alone too. Right. There was never a mob of of trying to get to him. But there was also, there wasn't any mob of, ah, you're a bum, you're a bum. Right. Like they would do in Boston if they're thinking they love the mat when they're at bat, but they're a bum <laughs> everywhere else. Let's take a break. Uh, we'll close with uh, a thought. In fact, we go into the break with, again, the portal. We had Angie Machado on yesterday. And she said there she was sitting, didn't she say, we're waiting on more news from the portal to spring anytime. Yep, and E.J. E. Jones, a graduate transfer from Kansas, 6'1", 180-pounder, is originally from Florida, started eight of Kansas's nine games, had six pass breakups, that's a good number. Yeah, 23 TFLs? Uh, 23 tackles. 23 oh. TFLs would be... <laughs> yeah, that, that would, would be, be better uh, than Hamaka Rashid Jr. Right, right. But anyway, 23 tackles, three six, six breakups. Did he have three yeah. TFLs? Yeah. That's good. That means he can and play the I run. Like, as a corner, I like that he's 6'1". And he's a, he's a long corner. And apparently has been sold, according to Andrew Nemec's story, sold on the idea. And I, the Beavers are doing just an amazing job in the portal. They are. Mm-hmm. How they whether they're again whether there's a previous relationship or not. Yesterday, uh, Angie Machado said, "Well, from her sense of things with running back Deshaun Fenwick out of South Carolina, there wasn't, and I don't know if there's any previous relationship with E.J. Jones. Mm-hmm. But what he sold on is, he says, quote." After Nishan Wright, who declared for the NFL draft last month, quote from Jones, that was definitely part of it, he said. When they told me they sent him off to the league, it showed they can develop people. I hope I can be the next guy to develop for that level. Yeah, so, I mean, they're looking at positions that every player, I can just see the portal, right? Every day, Doc. Is, what, anything on the portal? I know. Anything on but, the waiver but wire? The question anything? is, can, can you live off the portal? Well,. If you can find some big defensive tackles, maybe. Let's break and wrap it up next on 1240 Joe Radio. Hi, I'm former Oregon State athlete Tim Ewis, your Corvallis Edward Jones financial advisor. Financial investments are very important, but so are the investments of time, patience, and encouragement our young athletes receive from their coaches, teachers, and mentors. That's why Edward Jones is a proud sponsor of Oregon State and area high school sports. Call me, Tim Ewis, at 541-758-8245 or stop by my office in the Timber Hill Shopping Complex in Corvallis for all of your investment needs. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Go Beeves. Locally owned and operated for over 30 years, Corvallis Floor Covering would like to thank their many friends and customers for your continued support and looks forward to working with you on your next remodeling project. Stop by and see Wendy, Robin, or Brian and check out their large showroom with a wide variety of carpet, vinyl, laminate, tile, wood floorings, and window coverings from all the popular brands. Corvallis Floor Covering is at the corner of 2nd and Van Buren downtown or log on to CorvallisFloorCovering.com. Shop local, shop Corvallis Floor Covering, and go Beavs! Trump's Hobbies has been serving the area since 1972 and is a proud supporter of schools, clubs, and groups throughout the Mid-Valley. 
Trauma says the area's largest selection of radio control cars, boats, airplanes, and helicopters, plus drones, plastic models, model trains, fantasy games, collector cards, and modeling tools, parts, paints, and supplies. Whether you're an experienced modeler or just starting out, Trump's is there to help. Build it, drive it, fly it. Trump's Hobbies in the Timber Hill Shopping Center in Corvallis, bringing enjoyment to life. Hey, Beaver fans, football is back. Over the past several months, we all have come together to help each other in this COVID struggle. But would you know how to help a family member or a coworker in the time of an emergency? Hi, I'm Todd Washington, owner of CPR Works, where we teach people the skills to help someone in the time of an emergency. I am currently holding both virtual and in-person classes for CPR and first aid. For more information or to schedule a class, contact me at cpr-works.com. Go Beavs, we're back. Tick Liquor Firearms in South Corvallis and Salem is open Monday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. At Tick Liquor Firearms, find guns, outdoor gear, guns, ammo, and more guns. Buy, sell, or check out Tick Liquor So Ask about their monthly CHL classes. Come check out Tick Liquor So Ask about their monthly CHL classes. Come check out Tick Liquor Firearms on Southwest 3rd and Corvallis and on Southeast Commercial in Salem. View their inventory and shop online at TickLiquorFirearms.com. Have you tried to sell your RV? Was the offer from the RV dealer embarrassingly low? Garrity's Cash for Campers program will beat any offer for your RV, or we'll give you $500. This is Shannon Nill with Garrity RV Supercenters in Junction City. Now's a great time to sell or consign your travel trailer, fifth wheel, or motorhome so you can upgrade to a newer model that better fits your lifestyle. We've bought hundreds of RVs for cash, and you can be next. Safe vacations and escapes are now more important than ever, so make sure your RV is ready to maximize your fun and enjoyment. It starts by selling your current RV, and we'll give you $500 if Gary can't beat any other Oregon dealer's written offer on your late model RV in good condition. We'll even pay off your existing loan in a hassle-free transaction when we buy your RV. Visit Garrity.com to learn more about Cash for Campers. We don't just sell fun, we guarantee it. Offer not available to commercial parties. Subject to change without notice. See dealer for details. Learn more at Garrity.com. couple of minutes left. You ever the, heard of Red Ball Jets? Yeah, and Dave was calling. Did he also, te- he called, or maybe it's just independent. No, he called, or somebody, okay. I don't know who it was. Dave but. on the Tex- University Honda text line talks about, well, actually, he talks about uh, Zips, green tennis shoes called Zips. The commercial showed a guy putting on the shoes and jumping over a house like the bionic man. I begged my mother for a pair of Zips for many days. She agreed to buy them for me, but only if acknowledged that they would not actually allow me to jump over a house. So I agreed to the stipulation. I knew she was right, but I had to have them just in case. So Unfortunately, I was not able to jump over the house. Let me get this straight. Mom yeah. said, you can have them, but only if you promise me you can't jump over a right. house. Don't be trying or thinking you can jump over a house. So oh, that's, that's yeah. smart. Don't be thinking you can jump off the house and fly. <laughs> okay, what else you got, Doc? <laughs> well, What's this about Red, Red Ball Jets? Red Ball Jets. Jim called and right in to say Red Ball Jets. Any I memories? Class of '77. I I don't remember. I do. Them. I had I wore Red Ball Jets. Now, what was the brand? I don't. Maybe its own. I don't know. Huh. Red Ball Jets. And you For, wore them? Yeah, I had a pair. First wow. U.S. Olympic gold 
one wearing Nikes, Nike. Wayne Wells, a wrestler in 1972, wore Nikes to win gold, according to a texture here. Is that from OSU? No. Okay. I don't think so. We were on our way to Yakima. Okay, but then we got that that Bernie Wagner. I think there was one other one here, Red Ball Jets. Candy Cummings, Kip Carlson says, in terms of... Well, you know, with a question, Changing. has there ever been an athlete who epitomized American imagination better than Fosbury with his revolutionary flop? Maybe Candy Cummings inventing the curveball throwing seashells. See you tomorrow. Roll tape, please. Here's the microphone. Is this thing on? This is Q.